Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast. This is a product of the Bridge Network, recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. This episode is a seminar featuring three speakers, all of whom are researchers from the Bridge Network. In order of speaking, they are, first, myself, that is Ian Cooper of the DCU Brexit Institute, second, Orsolia Farkash of the Free University of Bozen Bolzano, and third, Suna Klinga of the University of Copenhagen. But in fact, the first voice you will hear is Maura Conway, who chairs the session, and she's from Dublin City University. You may notice that I speak for a little bit longer than the other speakers. This is because I take this opportunity to propose an analytical framework for the overall research program of the Bridge Network. This seminar was recorded at the kickoff conference of the Bridge Network last October. It is called Research Issues on Europe's Challenges. Here it is. My name is Maura Conway. I'm Professor of International Security here in the School of Law and Government at DCU. Um, I'm very happy to chair uh, this final session uh, in the Bridge uh, kickoff meeting. Uh, to my uh, far left is uh, Suna Klinge from the University of Copenhagen. Uh, to my near uh, left is uh, Ursula Farkas from the Free University of uh, Bozen in Bolzano. Uh, and on my right is Ian Cooper from DCU's uh, Brexit Institute. We have an hour and a half uh, for this session. Uh, Ian uh, is going to get a bit of a free pass in terms of timing because what he's going to do uh, is uh, set out the framework for the bridge project. So we attempt to set out a proposed framework for the bridge project. <laughs> Uh, and he's going to speak for about 25 minutes or there and thereabouts and our other two panelists are going to speak for about 15 minutes or so and that'll give us about uh, 30 minutes or so uh, for discussion. So we're going to go uh, as per uh, the, uh, the program uh, for today and so uh, Ian's going to kick us off. Thank you. <coughs> okay, so um, my intention uh, in this talk is just to give my a first cut at a, a framework for analysis that we can use uh, going forward in, for the, in the bridge network. And uh, this is actually also the presentation I'm going to be giving. I also wrote the very first blog post on the bridge network website is, is also um, the substance of that, of this talk is there uh, in that blog post. So you can take a look at that as well. So just introducing the bridge network. Um, one of the animating ideas of the Bridge Network is that there are these crises that have afflicted the European Union, for the, especially in the last decade. Um, and they are the Euro crisis, the migration slash Schengen crisis, the populism slash rule of law crisis, and Brexit. Um, and the working hypothesis, as it were, of the Brexit, inst of the, not the, the Bridge Project, me, um, of the bridge network is that these crises are interconnected and that they should be studied not in isolation but in parallel. And so, and in order in doing that, um, we will search for common interconnected solutions to these various problems and crises. Uh, and one possible set of solutions could be found in forms of differentiated governance. <laughs> And broadly speaking, uh, there will be two streams of scholarship 
um, coming out of the bridge network. And the first one, which will be most more dealing with, with the various crises and the interconnection between them, and the second being more dealing with solutions in the form of differentiated integration. But there isn't going to be a hard and fast uh, break between uh, one stream and the other. They will be very much overlapping. But in this talk, I'm going to be talking more about the first stream, and I will say a few words about differentiated governance towards the end. So briefly, um, why these four crises? Um, well, these, these four crises have, have uh, a number of attributes in common which uh, warrant treating them as a group. Uh, first of all, they're broadly contemporaneous, meaning that they're overlapping in time. Um, and that all of them, while you could, we can argue about when they started and when they finished, or if, if any of them is finished, uh, but they all had kind of a peak of, of a kind of critical phase. Uh, it's just maybe four or five years ago, um, when they, in the, mid, in the middle of this decade that's just coming to an end. So that's the first attribute. Second attribute is that they are all, to some extent, endogenous. Endogenous meaning generated from within. I'm a political scientist. Um, and so that is, that is to say that even if they're triggered by outside events, um, they are also uh, generated from within in that those outside events uh, revealed internal weaknesses within the European Union. For, so for example, the financial, uh, the euro <coughs> crisis began, was triggered by the financial crisis that happened, that started in the USA in 2008. But of course, it revealed fundamental flaws in the architecture of the single currency um, that rumbled on uh, in a number of crises uh, for years afterwards. Uh, or for ex another example is that there was a massive flow of migrants, an unexpected sudden flow of migrants um, uh, fr uh, from outside the Europe, from outside of the EU into the <coughs> EU, especially from Syria and other places, um, and that, but that exposed the weaknesses of the Schengen system and the and the Dublin system for dealing with um, with uh, migration, and so so these things revealed internal weaknesses in the European Union. Uh, the third attribute is that all of these crises in their way pose a fundamental challenge to the political, economic, and or legal order of the EU. So the Euro crisis and Brexit, they both threatened to break up the European Union itself. And then these, the other crises uh, threatened fundamental values of the European Union, freedom of movement, rule of law, respect for human rights. Um, and all four of these crises are um, broadly speaking, European crises, um, European problems needing a European solution. So we ask why these crises, why, like there are lots of other crises we could be talking about, the climate crisis, Russian aggression, the abdication of uh, American, American leadership in the world. All of these, but none of those are purely European crises and they're not amenable to European solutions. Whereas these four crises are really European problems that require European solutions. Um, so in thinking about that, I want to add a few kind of caveats like um, about, about the bridge network, um, parameters and caveats. So first of all, I want to acknowledge the fact that uh, talk about crisis, the word crisis itself is deeply political. So if you're talking about, if you, 
if you talk if you talk about a migration crisis, that is like you're you're making a political statement by calling it a crisis. Um, and so I would you know we need to have a, a critical distance from the length discourse of crisis. Um, and more broadly speaking, so we've got these four crises, um, but I'm, we're not going to impose a, a preset definition of these crises uh, on the events themselves, uh, because each each crisis is in its way difficult to define. It's it's uh, both in time and and space and scope. The time meaning it's hard to say exactly when it started and when it end, and when it ended if it ended. Uh, in space, it's hard to say exactly which countries, which member states are affected by the crises, and it's hard to say the scope, like, does it spill over into other policy areas? Um, so all of these things, so I'm not, we are not going to impose, a, like, a common definition of exactly what the crisis is. We want to have kind of an open and flexible uh, approach to the definition of these crises. So bridge is a multidisciplinary network. Um, and so that means that as a group, we're going to approach things with methodological pluralism. And, uh, and that means not just quantitative and quant qualitative approaches, but also normative approaches versus positivist approaches. Um, and so in, in kind of formulating this talk today, I've been trying to come up with a kind of an open and flexible uh, analytical framework where everyone can find a place for themselves within that framework. Um, so that all of us will be asking the same kinds of questions but not necessarily giving the same kinds of answers. Um, and, and finally, um, in relation to what was said uh, earlier, um, we will take a critical stance towards differentiated governance. When I say critical, I mean skeptical. Um, that is, we don't, we don't start with a presupposition that differentiation is a good thing. It might be a good thing in some circumstances, bad in other circumstances, but it's, we need to interrogate it subject, to, subject it to a critical analysis. And you have these four crises. And I freely admit that, you know, that my, uh, my knowledge is limited. Everyone, no one had, no one, maybe probably Bruno, but uh, probably there are not that many people in the room who have a full knowledge of all these different crises. Uh, and I, I admit that I have some knowledge of the Euro crisis and the Brexit crisis, but I, I'm, I'm, learn, I'm here to learn about the migration crisis and the rule of law crisis, for example. You have these four crises, each of which can exercise an influence over each other crisis. So mathematically, that means that there are 12 possible channels of influence. Now, please excuse my terrible <laughs> graphics, but if you look at this, then each arrow represents one possible channel of influence, how one, the events of one crisis can affect events in another crisis. When, you know, those of you who are participants in the bridge network, and I hope that most of you are, and you're welcome, and even if you're not yet, you're welcome to, uh, to join us. And when you're thinking about what research <coughs> that you want to contribute to the network, um, then you can look at that and you can, maybe you can find a place for yourself. Um, so, and think about when you're, so don't just think about one crisis, think about the inter-crisis dimension of the problem that you're looking at. Like how, not just one crisis in isolation, but how it is affected by and affects other crises. 
And so even if you just are concerned with one or two of these arrows, then you are contributing and then with together, collectively, then we can paint the broader picture and more or less cover the whole canvas. So, and to, I'll give an example. So, just talking about Brexit. If you think about what are the causes of Brexit, um, well, of course, Brexit has many causes, um, and probably more, the causes of Brexit have more to do with British domestic politics than they have to do with these other crises, um, but the, they are contributing factors. Um, and many, many attribute Brexit to differences, uh, fundamental difference in political culture between the UK and the rest of Europe. And so they say, you know, Brexit, you can trace it back to the Magna Carta or the, or the Reformation with Henry, Henry VIII breaking from Rome. But um, leaving that aside, we just thinking about whether or not these other crises actually contributed to Brexit. Well, you can go through them and you can sort of, you can <coughs> itemize them and say, well, the Euro crisis certainly um, had an influence over the Brexit, the decision to hold the referendum in the first place in Britain and also the result of the referendum. Um, so the UK, part of the reason that they wanted a, uh, a referendum, uh, wanted to, or they wanted to, uh, to renegotiate the UK's status within the EU, which led to the referendum, was they feared having to bail out um, uh, countries that were suffering from the Euro crisis. They also feared that they would be kind of locked out of the EU's internal market for financial services and they wanted guarantees that would allow them uh, uh, guaranteed access to those markets. And so you can see how the Euro crisis uh, fed into the ultimate uh, kind of um, first the negotiation and then the Brexit referendum and the result. Migration is also uh, pretty obviously a factor in the Brexit referendum. And, and that's, that includes migration from within the EU after 2004, uh, when, uh, when Britain welcomed, or at least allowed, uh, uh, all the new member states to immediately come into Britain. Um, and that, a decade later, affected attitudes about migration about the EU and about the EU in Britain. In, uh, and, and of course, and then also uh, there were more, just prior, just a couple of years prior to the, refer the referendum, there was the so-called migration crisis where uh, it seemed like hordes of, uh, of people were coming into the European Union uh, from outside mm -hmm. and that uh, people were fearing that they would be overrun even though very, very few actually reached the UK. Um, but that also fed into the atmosphere uh, of the Brexit referendum. And finally, the rule of law, you could ask yourself, did the rule of law crisis actually affect the Brexit referendum? Maybe on the margins, probably not that many people in, in Britain knew about the rule of law uh, crisis. Um, but it probably fed into a general feeling of crisis in, in, the, in Britain, feeling that something's wrong in, in uh, Europe or that, that, that uh, the European Union is corrupt. And so you can see how these in their way were causes of Brexit. And then, but then you can also turn the question around the other way and ask, uh, did Brexit have an influence on the other crises? Now, of course, Brexit is somewhat later in time than the other crises, but you can still see that um, it has a possible impact. The economic impact of Brexit 
is still unknown. But of course, if, if there's a no-deal Brexit, then that will, be, that will have huge collateral damage on the European economy. Um, migration. Uh, uh, the Brexit has, has resulted in a decrease in uh, migration from the EU to the UK. Um, and it's also led to great uncertainty in the citizenship status of UK citizens in, in Europe and EU citizens in uh, the UK post-Brexit, and that's still unresolved. And then finally, the rule of law. And here, if you think about the rule of law, actually this is kind of the most interesting finding uh, because, because has Brexit had an impact on the rule of law crisis? Well, in a way it has because um, the UK has had now a tendency to go soft on countries that are rule of law backsliders uh, because it sees them as potential allies in the Brexit negotiations. And so, for example, in September of uh, 2018, um, there was a vote in the European Parliament on whether to trigger the Article 7 mechanism, which would vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hungary. And uh, the Tories, the Conservative MEPs from Britain, voted, with a couple of exceptions, they voted against, the, um, against that measure. And so they voted, in a sense, in favor of Orban, going soft on Orban and, and the Hungarian regime. And so, and then, but you could even say that, that uh, rule of law backsliding has, accept, has affected um, the UK itself. So Brexit, because of Brexit, and just in the last couple of months, uh, what have you seen? Prorogation of parliament that has been found to be unlawful by the Supreme Court. So. The UK itself, which was always a paragon of the rule of law, is, uh, is now backsliding when it comes to the rule of law because of Brexit. And, uh, and you might interpret the events differently. I'm, I'm just using these to throw out some examples about thinking about the ways in which one crisis can affect another. And, and then if you put them all together, then you get a picture that looks like that, which is kind of um, maybe a bit confusing. Um, but if you break it out, and, and I do this in the blog post, I break it out into a table. And so if you think about um, that each crisis can influence each other crisis, well then down the left you have uh, the influencer. Each crisis says influencer. And across the top, each crisis says influencee. And uh, or um, independent and dependent variable, if you will, um, and and I won't go through them all, but you can see how that in thinking about how to place um, place uh, different kind of uh, different things into different boxes, maybe you can find that you have a piece of the puzzle to contribute uh, to over the overall uh, findings of the bridge network, and so that's. Um, that's most of what I have to say about the crisis uh, uh, and the crises and the interconnection between the crises. I'll just make a few comments about differentiated governance. Um, and this will be, and as we go on, and as we're thinking about going beyond crisis and starting to think about solutions, then we'll start to think about differentiated governance. Um, and each crisis is, is in various ways or it pos is possibly amenable to some kind of differentiated uh, 
uh, governance solution. The most obvious, well, the, well, the most, the most well-known, um, and the one that's already advanced the farthest is the Euro crisis, because it's already uh, a complex system of differentiated governance in the European Union as it relates to European economic governance. And it's not just limited to the distinction between Eurozone states and non-Eurozone states. It also affects a um, number of non-Eurozone states that each have a different kind of relationship uh, to various elements of the, uh, of the European economic governance architecture. Migration and Schengen, um, this is, well, of course, this is also a field of differentiated governance in the sense that, um, that Schengen is, a, is differentiated. It's, you have some member states that are in, some that are not. And I defer to the people in the room who know more about migration than me, but from an out, as an outsider, it looks more like differentiated non-governance in the sense that essentially you have um, a system that, is, that is, doesn't seem to be working. That th there doesn't seem to be a coherent, uh, a coherent uh, governance regime when it comes to migration. Um, thinking about rule of law and, and thinking about the warning from Renata about the existential threat of different, that differenti differentiation uh, can pose a different uh, existential threat if you think about differentiation in the field of rule of law. And I take that on board and again we want to take a critical approach to uh, differentiation. We don't want to just say differentiation is a good thing. Um, but even if you think about the possibility, and it's been discussed, that you can have conditionality in the <coughs> EU budget uh, so that rule of, law, rule of law backsliders would not get, uh, the piggy bank would be, would be closed for rule of law backsliders. Well, that in itself would, if you created a system like that, you could say that that in a way is a system of differentiated governance, uh, treating some states differently at, uh, from others, depending on certain criteria. And finally, Brexit, of course. Brexit itself uh, will be, uh, will represent a new form of differentiated governance in the EU. And we're only just starting to see it take shape. But it will create its own governance structures um, that uh, will be, that will, uh, that will be different uh, from the Norway model. It will be different from the Swiss model. It's going to be, it's going to be something new, but it could end up being a model for other, other uh, third countries. So this is something that, that we'll need to study in the future as well. So that, in a nutshell, is my framework for analysis. And I will <coughs> stop there and then pass on to my fellow uh, panelists. So good afternoon to all of you again. Uh, I don't have a PowerPoint uh, file, so what I try to do here is to have some kind of brainstorming exercise on what can be done. And I think that uh, my thoughts can be, uh, can fit very well to what Jan has just said about uh, interconnecting all the various uh, topics. Uh, well, my focus will be on migration, but migration both in terms of free movement of people, that is EU citizens, and migration of third country citizens, because I believe that uh, these two issues are very uh, narrowly interconnected and, and a little bit also dependent on each other. Uh, by uh, 
when I do this uh, kind of uh, discussion, this uh, kind of brainstorming, because this is my background. So uh, in the past, I've been working mainly on uh, citizenship issues, on solidarity issues in terms of, uh, of non-economically active uh, EU citizens, uh, which was more like uh, a legal focus on my research, uh, but I also did uh, uh, some research on immigration and uh, inclusion of immigrants uh, in various Italian realities. Okay, so uh, what uh, can I propose as thinking points, as directions <coughs> to be integrated within uh, the project and how to connect migration with the other uh, focuses uh, in the project? Uh, so first of all, we have Brexit, right? Uh, so how to connect migration with Brexit. And, and something was already said uh, by Jan uh, in uh, his uh, speech. Uh, so what happens after, what might happen after Brexit, when it happens and, and if it happens? Uh, a lot has been said and written already about uh, what will happen with those who will stay. Brexit Institute already published uh, some working papers on the eventual uh, possibilities uh, of a regulatory framework after Brexit. So this is something which has been done already or will be, been, will be done very soon after Brexit. But my question would be what will happen with those who have to move, those who have to leave the UK, okay? Because for some reason uh, they cannot stay uh, in uh, the UK. And I was thinking mainly about EU citizens in this uh, context. Uh, what happens if they have to leave and <coughs> where can they leave? Do they return to their home country? Will be, there will be some incentives from the home countries uh, to go back. What kind of effects their mass return to the home countries will produce uh, in these terms? What will happen in Britain? Okay, so once EU citizens leave <coughs> in a mass, if it happens, there will be maybe a substitution because the labor market is in need of labor force. Uh, so s those jobs left by EU citizens will be taken up by someone else. There will be a third country immigration under which terms? Okay, this uh, might be one other question to be discussed uh, within the, uh, <coughs> the project. Uh, and then one other question is what will happen with the UK citizens living in uh, other EU states? in the remaining 27 uh, member states. There, what kind of solutions can be offered? Uh, probably, as we can guess today, uh, there will be some reciprocity. So if uh, EU citizens can stay um, as uh, settled residents in the UK, then uh, the UK citizens can stay in the other uh, EU member states. But what happens if they simply become third country citizens? Okay. Uh, what kind of access they can have to the labor market, okay? If it's a public sphere or it's the private sector, there might be a differentiation according to the national legal system. What will happen with the non-economically active UK citizens, old people living in Spain and Italy? What will happen with UK students, okay? Uh, to what extent uh, they can <coughs> apply for scholarships, to what extent they can be treated, non-treated equally? Uh, with EU citizens. So these are all uh, open questions. Uh, what we can assume is that there will be some kind of coordinated uh, coordinated uh, response from um, 
from uh, the remaining 27 member states, but we don't really know. We learned in January uh, with uh, Federico that Austria adopted uh, <coughs> a measure uh, in the eve of, or in, in the case uh, of uh, no deal uh, Brexit already back in March, that all employment relationships <coughs> have been maintained uh, uh, by UK citizens living in Austria. Okay. And if you think in practical terms, this uh, is a very um, relevant question because I guess that most uh, or many uh, UK citizens living in other EU member states, uh, they work in the public sector as, as English teachers. And access to uh, the public sector is regulated differently uh, than access to the private sector. So these would be the questions uh, for Brexit and the consequences of Brexit. But let's turn now to the issue of the remaining 27 member states. What kind of research topics can be proposed or what kind of scenarios uh, we can uh, describe already now. So the starting point can be that we have a space, a more or less homogeneous uh, space uh, among the 27 remaining member states, which is characterized by the free movement of EU citizens, which is characterized by EU citizenship, by the Schengen area, and the joint external border control, and by a common asylum policy, which is a tricky question, this um, last point, uh, as it was said already, um, that it doesn't really uh, function or it's uh, more linked to a non-governance uh, perhaps than to uh, governance. So we have this shared space, but this space is really differentiated. Therefore, the solutions uh, must be worked out according to these uh, differences, according to these uh, differentiations. And we can say immediately, and, and this is one point I, I will conclude and, and come back to, to the end, that um, this common asylum policy, the Dublin regulation, <coughs> and <coughs> immigration policy, but I would be very cautious with this expression in this moment, uh, are linked, but <coughs> they are linked because of practical reasons. As a lawyer, I would say, no, 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 don't mix up these categories, right? Uh, asylum and immigration policy as, as a whole. Uh, yes, there is a common asylum policy, but since in most member states the channels for legal immigration, the channels to have access in a legal way to the labor market, it's so limited that those economic migrants try, uh, who would like to reach Europe try to, uh, to use the asylum uh, channel. So this is why these two areas, uh, these two uh, policy spheres, although in legal terms they are very well separated, in political discourses they are really diligently and uh, clearly intentionally mixed up and used by populist discourses. So here we can, uh, we can uh, link uh, the research uh, to the other uh, crisis scenario uh, proposed by the bridge uh, network. So something should be done, and this is one uh, possible proposal, uh, in order to, uh, uh, to decouple these two channels. Right, uh, asylum policy and uh, immigration policy. But before coming to this uh, element, uh, I would like to describe very shortly uh, three very different situations or groups of situations uh, within this shared European space of free movement and, uh, and uh, migration. Uh, because we can uh, 
set up very different uh, groups of member states uh, in relation to the problems they face, both in terms of free movement of people, that is EU citizens, and uh, in terms of uh, migration. And I actually listed three uh, groups, but then uh, the comment what, uh, which was just made uh, at the end of the, the other session would add a fourth point. Uh, but let's see uh, which are the uh, three points that uh, those uh, three uh, groups of states that I collected. First, uh, in particular, the Western member states or the old member states, okay, uh, and they face the problem of the integration of, uh, of mainly uh, third country citizens, but I would not say that integration is a problem only, uh, which relates only to third country citizens, because if we look at the statistics, uh, the third most numerous group of non-citizens in the various member states throughout the uh, <coughs> European <laughs> Union is the Romanian community, after the Turkish and the Moroccan uh, community. <laughs> Only in Italy there are one million Romanian citizens. So to a certain extent their <coughs> integration is also a question. Integration to the uh, labor market, integration to the society. Clearly because of a religious uh, background, uh, for example religious background, uh, there is much uh, uh, less question marks or, or uh, discussion points than Turkish uh, immigrants, uh, for example. But still, uh, even within this <coughs> group, like receiving countries, uh, it is quite difficult to find uniform answers for immigration for integration. Uh, and this uh, statement can be underpinned uh, by by the research finding that uh, I did um, a couple of years ago. Uh, examining just three Italian regions, uh, Valle d'Aosta, South Tyrol, and Friuli Venezia Giulia, and I could find uh, very different immigration and integration patterns because the segments of the labor market uh, interested in immigration uh, were very different, very, very different, plus the linguistic diversity was added as, as an extra uh, interest uh, point. So uh, this is one uh, group of countries where some answers uh, some proposals can be uh, sketched out. Then uh, there's one other, uh, the second uh, group uh, of countries, and here I would collect the new member states, okay? And one would say that, okay, these are the sending countries, not only, they are also receiving countries. And immigration and, for the moment, sorry, uh, for the moment, uh, the free movement of people creates problems. What kind of problems, <coughs> uh, or what is uh, in the center of uh, the discussion? Uh, many of uh, these countries are sending countries, like Hungary, for example. Five uh, hundred thousand Hungarians live abroad. Romanians, it means brain drain. It means a generational problem. Okay, uh, is there a need for substitution? Is there a need to uh, to keep uh, Romanian citizens at home? Uh, in the Baltic countries, uh, in terms of minorities, some of the Baltic countries, they have Russian minorities, and if, uh, 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 and as a consequence of the exercise of the free movement rights, the proportion within the minority groups might change, raising further uh, problems, or, or there are some other uh, issues uh, to be answered, I would say, by European pol uh, or EU policy initiatives mm -hmm. that, uh, let's take this very practical example that 
greenfield investments are of course uh, are uh, warmly welcomed in all member states. But if we think about uh, a middle-sized town in Slovakia, and this is a real case actually, a uh, middle-sized town in Slovakia where a South Korean car uh, producing company uh, would create 5,000 new jobs, this is wonderful, right? But what does it mean on the ground? It means that the city or the town which is concerned has 70, 77,000 uh, inhabitants. 5,000 new jobs would mean 20,000 people moving in with families. What about the infrastructure? What about schools? What about housing? What about health uh, care? And so on. So all the <coughs> migration problem then will spill over to other policy areas uh, where uh, answers uh, must uh, be found. So the policy uh, answers might look uh, for uh, for the answers to how to attract uh, labor force, how to keep nationals uh, on the, uh, at home for the job market, uh, and how to mitigate uh, eventually the, the effects of migration or free movement. Again, why migration and free movement are connected? Because citizens in some uh, Eastern European countries, they exercise their right to free movement, that is they move mainly to the West, but it means that there's labor shortage and there's a clear labor shortage uh, in some of the members. It's like in Slovakia for the new car uh, producing uh, site. Uh, in Hungary, Ukrainian workers show up in mass, actually, uh, Maybe it's an anecdote, uh, but, uh, but it <coughs> can be uh, easily uh, true that in the construction uh, sector uh, close to Budapest, those who are hired should speak Ukrainian, Ukrainian or, or Russian, at least. Okay? Because uh, uh, there is a labor shortage, there's a, therefore uh, Hungarian workers must be substituted by third country citizens. So again, uh, these two sectors are uh, interconnected, uh, interrelated. Uh, last but not least, um, uh, I would say that there is a third group of countries, and uh, this third group is a little bit hypothetical, uh, thanks to the uh, events of the last week when France decided to stop uh, the enlargement process, right? So what will happen in the case of the uh, Balkan enlargement, if the Western Balkan countries uh, can become members in the future, <coughs> maybe in six years' time, uh, ten years' time. Uh, if, in the case of these countries, there will be similar arrangements as with the Eastern enlargement in 2004 and, and 2007, uh, meaning uh, the limitations to the exercise of free movement, okay? Uh, you might uh, remember uh, that uh, in the event of the uh, Eastern enlargement, uh, the old member states could limit the access to the labor market uh, to their own labor markets uh, from uh, the new uh, member states for a maximum period of seven years, which was a very um, painful measure for Eastern Europeans, but uh, we can argue for its economic uh, benefits also in the home countries. And if we think about the Balkan countries, they are very small economies, uh, they might be hurt by the massive uh, exercise of free movement towards uh, the, uh, <coughs> the Western European countries. So uh, in all these contexts, uh, I would say that some kind of EU, uh, EU answer can be uh, elaborated. But what kind of answer uh, we can find and what kind of uh, research agenda we can have uh, 
in this uh, perspective. One would say that a common immigration policy, probably there is no way. Probably there is no way, but some kind of coordination, some kind of common guidelines, mm -hmm. some kind of benchmarking or exchange of best uh, practices uh, can take place. Uh, why not a common immigration policy? Well, we have all the labor markets separated, even within the internal market, right? So if all the labor market regulations within the member states are separated, immigration is perhaps a more sensitive uh, issue, of course, and again, we can link it to the populist uh, uh, stand of, of the project uh, that immigration is a politically very sensitive topic. So uh, the member states, national governments uh, would be very keen on keeping this issue within the national uh, sphere. Uh, but still, uh, still, I would argue, uh, and I'd be happy to do some uh, research on uh, on finding or figuring out uh, benchmarking processes or guidelines which can stream uh, the uh, immigration policies of the member states. And by concluding, I would, uh, uh, I would suggest two initial uh, initiatives. One is to increase the legal channels of immigration, uh, which would help uh, because uh, all member states, or most member states, they need immigrants on their job market. This is very clear. Recognized or less recognized, but, but there, is, uh, there is a need for extra labor force. But increase the, the, the legal opportunities for legal immigration, and that would help to limit, <coughs> to limit uh, the, the, the food of populist discourses uh, uh, by uh, the massive illegal uh, immigration. Uh, so this, this would be one proposal, and one other uh, proposal would be uh, to figure out, to, uh, to elaborate more, uh, more legal opportunities uh, to promote the uh, migration of skilled labor force. Skilled labor uh, force, more precisely, I would argue, in favor of a better blue card system. Uh, or uh, one uh, can follow the path of the European Qualifications Framework System. That is, the legal uh, that uh, the qualifications can be more easily uh, recognized uh, in the host uh, member states, and then uh, the the promotion of uh, pilot projects, small scale projects. Uh, where uh, pre-departure measures can be applied to select uh, potential uh, immigrants, uh, to train potential immigrants, uh, both vocationally and, and in, in terms of uh, promoting their civic integration, uh, because then these immigrants can be more easily integrated uh, into the host uh, societies. So these would be the, the proposals, very preliminary proposals, ideas, thinking points or directions that I can see for the future, and I would be really happy to, to integrate with all your comments and, and critiques as well, of course, uh, and further proposals. Thank you. I was uh, asked to tell a bit about um, the current research that I'm uh, doing at the University of Copenhagen um, related to this bridge on the network. Um, I just handed in my PhD and uh, defended it. So I did a PhD dissertation on EU integration, rule of law, and especially legal certainty related to horizontal effect of EU directives and EU fundamental rights. And this 
sort of links very well to the ongoing rule of law crisis that uh, I now hear that you think is uh, <laughs> is over and out. But um, I will come back to that. Maybe it's not uh, all concluded on, on that area. I will tell a bit more about our DEMOS project, which is uh, Horizon 2020 project that Helle earlier today told you that I would come back to, so I will. And then I will look at um, the future of EU 2020 and maybe I should add the fourth would be maybe the fifth crisis because Brexit in itself you define as a crisis. So um, I will go with that one uh, later on. But starting on sort of the rule of law crisis, um, we have some different perceptions of rule of law. We have our Danish uh, Vestaya, uh, the commissioner, who thinks that rule of law in Europe is a very visible sign of our commitment never to fall back into tyranny and violence. And then again, on the other side, we have the Hungarian, who also has sort of a perception of when they, sort of the EU and the elite, they do question the rule of law, they step on our honor. Because it should be noted that in Central Europe, freedom of the press and the rule of law are not political tools. No, no. We take this very seriously and hope that it will not be used as a political weapon against Hungary. So, to my opinion, this sort of outlined the very difficulties in discussing rule of law and the rule of law crisis because we have to sort of fence in the meaning, the concept of rule of law. And I thought we now have a, um, one covering the Hungarian, so I would just look at uh, sort of our recent uh, research in, in the Polish uh, uh, cases from the European Court of Justice. And as you might well know, there was the June case in the lowering of the retirement age in the Supreme Court, and there was uh, the Supreme Court of the Poli uh, of uh, Poland on my on my front page, um, but uh, it's still pending. Another case on the independence of ordinary courts, and uh, you, the European Court of Justice will give its judgment on the fourth of November, so next week, and we're looking forward to that. It's it's more or less uh, claiming the same that they violated the treaty in itself. The the, the independence of, uh, of the court by, by doing different things. Um, so uh, the commission uh, alleged, or, and it was found in that first case that has uh, already been, been, been finalized, that it, uh, what the Polish government did was a profound and imminent change in the court's composition, infringing the principle of irremovability of judges as a guarantee essential to their independence. So these moves, these strategies of populist parties, they are sort of violating the institutions, uh, the national institutions. So the, the Supreme Court here is saying like constitution in Polish. I, I looked up at <coughs> Google Translate. It's not that my Polish is very well. But what they did, they sort of undermined the very principle. And consequently, um, the Court of Justice found that it was a breach of the very treaty in itself, there was a big debate which, um, on, on, on which uh, it also violated the charter and if it, the charter was uh, applicable. But anyway, what, what I sort of ask is what is, the, what is the effect towards populist parties of these judgments coming from the European Court of Justice? The Commission brings an action under Article 258 for failure to fulfill the obligations to be part of the European Union. What is the next move? Is that the twofold failure? Is that another infringement procedures 
maybe to some of you who don't uh, sort of are into this, but this is this is sort of a way if you don't fulfill the first uh, infringement procedure, you can you can file another one. Is that the next step? Are actually the legal remedies here effective <laughs> towards these um, French countries? You could you could say actually coming from Denmark, right? But anyway, um, can the can the rule of law principle be used towards these populist parties or? As you've seen, and as this project of bridging is uh, is looking at, could also financial restraints or intergovernmental pressure be used instead outside the <coughs> European Union or within? What do we do? Do we actually do sort of use all what is at our hands? And this this actual, and I would say still going on crisis in Poland uh, on the rule of law fits very well into the project that I'm. Um, doing as a part of the Horizon 2020 on populism. Because what is populism, you could start by asking. And in legal scholarships, and there are definitely some disciplinary variations, it means sort of that it has harmful effect to liberal democracy through at least three mechanisms. That it undermines the institutions of liberal democracy as we've seen in Poland. It degrades the human rights perspective. and in sort of implies a panel reforms that increase polarization and expose poor as well as also other part like immigrants and their chances for integration. And as I said, there are disciplinary varieties because in an economic approach, and this is an interdisciplinary project, populism means something else. And we're trying to find out these varieties if there are common grounds and how this can sort of um, uh, be analyzed. Heli just told that what we've done until now is that we've analyzed the language that these populist parties, defined by very sort of, from a Danish perspective, we have a radical white wing um, populist parties, and how they sort of use their communication on, on social media uh, to promote their influence. But what is populism? Is it sort of, is it, it's a loosely defined ideology at least if we take the Muda definition. It is both like a political strategy, <coughs> it's a style in com uh, political communication, but it's a discourse, but is, does it have any sort of legal content as well? And that's where I, as a legal scholar, come in, and hopefully we can say something about it. And as I pointed out uh, in the Polish uh, legal crisis, I think we have difficulties in answering these populist discourses and uh, with only legal remedies. because. Who is sort of the uh, in in this term? Who is is it class-based or ethnical? We have nativist approaches. Who is the elite? Is it the Europe? Is it the European Union? Is it the media? Is it the judges? We've seen like uh, as of yesterday a Danish example of uh, our populist party um, having sort of going against the um, the Supreme Court of Denmark first time ever. And what we do from a legal perspective, and as I said, it's interdisciplinary, so there's a lot of uh, politics, there's a lot of uh, economics also participating in this Horizon project. But we do, we do look at the legal concepts and see how they interact with populism. And as far as now, the preliminary sort of findings would be that they do not interact that well, but maybe they do in sort of finding the, uh, or fencing the, the, the principle of rule of law. That's sort of my current research, and it goes uh, on top of what I did in my PhD.
but also adding uh, other things to it. And by that, I was not teasing or, or sort of saying anything bad about the bridge project, but I say maybe we could put on this climate changes that uh, Ian also mentioned as a crisis. I know that it's not maybe right now uh, uh, been solved, if that's sort of the way in, but my guess would be that in the next three years, this will be um, a, a huge thing. Maybe you know this picture, it's from Greenland. At least in Denmark, it was a very big thing, because maybe it's not clear, but these sled ducks, uh, ducks here are walking in water. So it, it, it was sort of only a way to find a picture showing these global warming. Um, and what I suggest is that maybe to some degree, these crises that we talked about is looking back. If we look at the future of EU 27, maybe the climate crisis could be a way to unite again. Because migration, migration is a sensitive politic area, <coughs> climate as well, but in another way, I think it's easier without using populist strategy of communication. It's easier to unite around like something that we are common as uh, human beings around in climate change. What should be done? I, I will not give answers, but you could point at EU solution in this area, at least from a Danish perspective, the environmental law stemming from the EU is, is, uh, has great impact on how we regulate. You could take a human rights perspective on the climate as well, um, or you could have this intergovernmental solution, and uh, if you do take the human rights perspective, I'm just suggesting, and what I'm doing in my research is looking at, for instance, Norway, who sort of incorporated into their constitution a right to nature. So having this anthropocentric point of view that nature is for the human beings, that's one way to go on this uh, area. And then another thing, because Denmark is also to some degree related to, to what is going on in, in, in sort of the Brexit crisis, you could point at uh, uh, Greenland and Faroe Island. Many people maybe just think of Denmark as, as uh, this little sweet country with five million people. But what we do also have is a past of uh, colonist uh, 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 overseas territories. We have uh, Greenland and Faroe Island who have this uh, very um, difficult self-governing uh, system. They are under the constitution of Denmark, but they are now trying in Faroe Island, they have been come pretty far on, on making their own constitution, which definitely would violate our constitution. So I call it regional, or if you add it at a sort of uh, EU level, you would say sub-regional, because Denmark would be a region itself, right? So sub-regional constitution making, or uh, and then linking also, I thought, okay, we need to also link this to, to migration. And I thought this climate crisis with the rise of the waters and, and stuff, we have a, a very bright um, a scholar at uh, our, as many bright scholars, right? But she's doing um, climate migration. So if the waters go up, will people's home life be affected? Will we have now the second uh, influx of migrants stemming from, from climate migration? So. Um, so these were sort of my, my initial thoughts on, on the current research that we're doing in Copenhagen and how it relates to, to the bridge um, uh, project. And just uh, to conclude and to, to, to give you a takeaway, I would just say at this Brexit uh, Institute and to wrap up that 
looking at Greenland, and now I, I just thought of how, how does this also relate to the Brexit, we do, and maybe you don't know, but we do have sort of a Greenlandic exit already, so Brexit is not a new thing, because Greenland in uh, 1985, uh, uh, the year I was born, um, held a referendum, and uh, afterwards they have sort of made intergovernmental regulation in this self-governing regime, they take back some politic areas, they conclude treaties themselves with EU on a sub-regional level, they partnership with EU, especially sort of in, in, in quotas on fish and stuff like that, not foreign policies, but we have difficulties in Denmark dealing with Chinese workers coming to Greenland using resources. Many different things uh, go, uh, go along with this. And this was just a way to point out that this is something that we do know some about and maybe we can explore more together and you can see some links into what the research we're doing in Denmark about Greenland. The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of the Bridge Network, which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute with Catherine Martin as the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening.